Well, good morning and welcome to uh, Christ Community Leeward Campus. And I'm Tom Nelson. We're really glad you're here on this, uh, as uh, Brother Andrew said, a hot uh, summer morning uh, in Kansas City. So we're, again, very delighted you're here. We're actually starting a new series that uh, we're very excited about. You can see our graphic. Um, the title of the series is Does It Really Matter? And uh, during this summer, we're going to examine the historical faith, faith that Orthodox Christians believe from the early, early centuries. And I think we're doing this because we live in a time particularly where we often hear it doesn't really matter what we believe, what matters is that we believe. In other words, what really matters is to have faith in faith. Now, while Christians believe faith is really important, we also believe what we believe is important too. And Christianity is not only a consistent way of life, it is also a coherent set of beliefs. A Christian is not only someone who behaves rightly, but also someone who believes rightly. Now, when I say that, of course, believing rightly doesn't mean Christians believe perfectly. As as creatures, finite creatures, none of us can grasp with unassailable certainty everything there is to know. Though we cannot know perfectly, let me just say we can know some things truly. True Christianity is not feeling-based. It's not sentimental. True Christianity is a truth-based faith, a truth-based faith that does not drift or morph on cultural currents of accommodation, but faith that is tethered, a timeless faith tethered in time-space history. No one said this better, perhaps in the modern world, than a pastor of Germany, he was very well known, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred by the Nazis and who faced a church in his time that accommodated and compromised truth. He was prophetic to the German church, but it was losing its way through cultural accommodation and false doctrine. And I believe he's prophetic to us today, particularly to the American church. In his classic book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer writes these words, and they are prophetic for our time. The basis of the community of the spirit, that is the church, is truth. So for the next nine weeks, we are going to explore what we believe at Christ's community are some of the truest truths of the universe, truths that matter in your life and mine, and they matter to our world and to all human flourishing. And as a faith community, these truths are embedded in our doctrinal beliefs, our doctrinal statement. And hopefully as you've come in or as you're leaving, I'm not sure, you have picked up one of these. Did you guys pick one of these yet? Okay, so uh, that's a bookmark for us to kind of track together this summer and for you to look more carefully at those. Now, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, again, I want to welcome you here. Uh, This is a hopeful series, something we are hopeful for all of us. We hope it will help us clarify what Christians believe, true Christians, what is challenging and compelling for all of us to live this life. Let me also say, we uh, want to welcome you if you're here this morning and you're not really sure Christianity is true. Uh, We welcome you in God's grace and love you and care for you and I'm glad to say that you are here. I hope uh, wherever you are on your spiritual understanding that you will embrace these messages with an open mind, a critical mind, uh, and understanding what Christians believe. Now, we also want to communicate to you that if you are a real skeptic, and we all have levels of skepticism in us, don't we? Don't we? That I want to suggest to you that even the strongest skeptic of Christianity wants these truths to be true. Recently, I was uh, reading atheist Julian Barnes' book, uh, and it's entitled, Nothing to be Frightened of. 
If you have read his very thoughtful reading over the years, this Brit, he's a very bright and powerful literary writer. He is facing his own mortality, and he writes this book. And in the book, he says, you know, that he misses God even if he doesn't believe in him. And he goes on to say in the book uh, that uh, he misses the sense of the purpose the Christian narrative brings with it. The sense of wonder and belief that informs art and architecture and has produced such a rich culture in the Western world. He writes these words. Listen, he says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. He says, I miss the God that inspired Italian painting and French stained glass, German music and English chapter houses, those tumbled down heaps of stone on the Celtic headlands, which were once symbolic beacons in the darkness and the storm. As you read his work, Barnes digs in his heel of disbelief, and uh, he ends up saying that Christianity is a foolish lie. And then he clarifies it with a sense of charm, but it is and was a beautiful lie. Now, in case you're wondering whether I agree with this bright, thoughtful writer, I don't. Uh, But I do respect his intellect. And I believe that Christianity embodies and points us not to a foolish lie, friends, but to the greatest truths of the universe, ultimately to the person of truth, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, before we begin the series and open the message this morning, I'd like to pray. And I want to say the text we are in, Hebrew scholars, and if you read it in the Hebrew text, this is the finest Hebrew poetry ever written in human history as we enter Isaiah 40. It is truly outstanding and stunning in all literature of antiquity. And so as we enter it, I want us to respect it wherever we believe and to realize we are standing on extraordinary space in this text. And I need the Holy Spirit, you need the Holy Spirit to hear and to listen. So let's pray, okay? Holy Father, Son and, Holy, and, and, Son and Spirit, we ask as we probe the greatest truths imaginable that you would show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if I were to ask you this question, how would you answer it? What is the most important thing about you? Perhaps coming to mind would be several things. The degrees you've acquired, which are good things, are good things. The work you do, the success perhaps you've had or achieved. Perhaps you'd think where you live, or obviously your charming personality and good looks and brilliant intelligence. Number of Facebook friends you have or Twitter followers, that's a big one today. And perhaps it's the size of your portfolio of retirement or other investments. Maybe it's the children you have or let's all face it, and I don't have this yet, but grandchildren. You know, they're the perfect little critters. But what comes into your mind when you think what's most important to you? What what is it? What, What defines you? What's the most important thing about you? Now, A.W. Tozer, one of the finest Christian writers of the modern period, uh, in his classic book that I commend to you, The Knowledge of the Holy, begins the book with this question. What is the most important thing about you? And he says, the most important thing about us is what we think about God. That's a bold assertion. And all of us think about God, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, our Thoughts of God take us in many directions, don't they? If we're very much influenced by Freud and the therapeutic era, 
We wonder if there really is a God, that if God is sort of this cosmic imaginary friend we've created to make us feel good and not alone in the universe. Very common. Or perhaps we struggle to believe in someone we can't see with our physical senses. That's very real for many of us. And some of us who, again, believe in God and believe strongly in God, we still struggle with him. Uh, We wonder why it seems he doesn't act in our life, why he seems distant, why he seems uncaring when bad things happen in our life and in the world, don't we? And the questions that come in our very depths of our being, is God really there? Who is he? Does he really care? Does he really know what's going on in the world? And one of the things that's amazing as you study human history is these questions are not new. These questions are a vital part of what it means to be human in a fallen world. And they've been asked since human history began. Over 3,000 years ago, God's covenant people of Israel were asking these questions. God, are you really there? Do you really know what's going on? And do you care? The prophet Isaiah responds to these questions. How does he do it? If you brought your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Isaiah, this marvelous book in the Old Testament. I've already alluded to it's viewed by Hebrew scholars and uh, students of antiquity as the finest Hebrew literature ever penned, and I concur wholeheartedly. But let's set the historical context in this literary masterpiece. The book of Isaiah was written at a time in God's covenant people's journey that was a dark twilight. I mean, as we understand history, their nation's history, it was the moment before the end, so to speak. In this time period, about 606 BC in that range, Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, was the superpower of the world, the highest place of culture. And the powerful superpower of Babylon was ready to pounce down on this small state called Israel. And in just a moment in human history, in just the twinkling of an eye, the readers of Isaiah's text, their capital city, Jerusalem, would be under siege. And in a threefold siege over a period of about 13 years, Jerusalem would be ransacked, the survivors, those who survived, would be led into slavery and exile into Babylon. These are dark times. And Isaiah responds in his brilliant literature in a threefold progression of Isaiah. So if you read the whole text in its entirety of Isaiah, notice the integrity of the literature. In, verse, in chapter 1 through 39, Isaiah gives messages of judgment, of warning. Then he turns, right in our text here, in chapter 40 through 55, of messages of comforting his people. And then in 55 through 66, he ends his brilliant Uh, scrolls with messages of hope, and that's the flow of Isaiah. So I want you to see as we enter into chapter 40, this marks a new literary section, and it is marked with a strong heralding. You think of an ice cream truck that goes down the neighborhood. I like that. You cannot help but not hear it, right? It's a, a loudspeaker. Or a heralder of an ancient town crier. This is the text beginning in the Hebrew text of 40, chapter one, 40, verse 1. It is a literary megaphone that Isaiah now transitions and he screams out, Nakam, Nakam, Ami, which means comfort, comfort my people. It stuns us when we hear it proclaimed. Comfort, comfort. 
And then in verse 9, he says, Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not, says the cities of Judah. Behold, Hanei, behold your God. Throughout chapter 40, as you look at it, the prophet Isaiah repeatedly reminds us that theology beckons us with this Hebrew phrase, behold your God, behold your God. And you'll notice the repetition of chapter 40 with this Hebrew phrase. Now, theology may be a word we don't use often, right? I mean, it's not the kind of thing we... uh, tweet a lot about or have a conversation about. It's not a word we often use in everyday conversations. What is it? It simply means to think rightly and believe rightly about God. And notice Isaiah presents theology in a bedrock idea that theology is a good news of a God who rescues his people. At The heart of theology is good news about God and his rescue. So as we press into the last section of Isaiah 40, these five last verses that are the literary crescendo of this marvelous chapter, I want us to raise two questions. First is, how big is your God? This is embedded in the Hebrew text, the question that Isaiah presents to his people. And secondly, he weaves into it in a subtle but profound way the question, why does it matter after all? So how big is your God? And why does it matter? These are the two questions the prophet Isaiah is building to in this text. Look at me at verses 27 through 29. Now notice the rhetorical questions and how this poetry is phrased. There's a rhetorical person he's engaging in. So he says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Echoing in this text is a sense of incredulity. The Lord, notice all caps, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. With his brilliant literary brush, Isaiah the prophet pictures a God who is anything but small. Yet in this rhetorical framework in verse 27 is this question. And Isaiah is pointing out that God's covenant people have a very puny view of God. Yes, they are facing difficult circumstances. But they are becoming more self-absorbed and less God-aware. And in this text, they are thinking two things. They're saying, God, you're either clueless or you care less about this world than us. You're either clueless or you care less. You're either not great enough or you're not good enough for our worthy of our devotion and trust. So in verses 28 to 29, Isaiah has had this bold transformational encounter of encountering the one true God in Isaiah 6 now answers his own rhetorical question, do you see that, by emphatically declaring the good news that God is two things. God is both unfathomably great and unimaginably good. Now, I remember hearing this, uh, this rich theology growing up uh, in my home. It wasn't a time of devotions or where we study the Bible together. It was at every meal, or at least many of them. And growing up in a single-parent home, uh, six of seven kids, mealtime was a zoo. It was a jungle. We were all hungry. 
And uh, my dear mom had two rules. Very true. Two rules was don't keep your elbows on the table, at least both of them. (laughs) And secondly, matter how hungry you are, keep both feet on the floor at all times. That was her two rules. The third thing was we always said grace before a meal. And one of the things I remember as my earliest days, probably three or four, was one of my favorite prayers because it was, had a down-to-earth brevity. You know, you don't want to pray long before meals. Parents, if you pray long time before meals, that's, that's really bad. Don't do that. <laughs> Use your profound prayers for bedtime or something. The food's getting cold, right? We're hungry. Um, but I remember hearing this, and I loved its down-to-earth brevity, but I never understood its theological profundity until I got older. And maybe you heard this prayer. It was very simply. We bowed our heads, folded our hands, and said, I mean, I remember this when I was three. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. You want me to close my message right there? (laughs) Sorry, I'm not there yet. I mean, sorry. But we understood even early on that the God we served was both both great and good. And this is what Isaiah says. Notice in verse 28, God is great. This is where he emphasizes it. He shines his literary lens on God's unfathomable greatness. And the Hebrew words in the text, I know I'm emphasizing the Hebrew, the Hebrew is so brilliant here that it's hard for me to grasp it. It's so rich with meaning we just don't want to do touch and go landings or a cruise by, okay? It begins, actually the text of Hebrew begins, and English changes because of grammar, It begins and it jumps out at you with this phrase, the everlasting God. That's how it starts. Isaiah immediately begins describing God in the context of time itself and human history. So we know from Isaiah that the one true God not only created time, he is beyond time itself. And he orchestrates the movement of time and history for his sovereign purposes, following the everlasting God. Now comes two Hebrew words translated in your Bible, the Lord, all caps, right? There's some that are all caps and some that are not all caps. This is all caps, and creator. Now, the word creator immediately tuned the readers back to Genesis 1.1. Because this word is only used of God. In the beginning, God created. So it takes us back to God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And notice... The uh, translation English, the Lord, all caps, is described as the one who is, the absolute unchangeable one who has always been, always will, and always will be. This word takes us back to Exodus 3.15. All the Hebrew listeners would have understood that. It was where the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob revealed himself to Moses, made the timeless connection of the unchangeable one, and said, I am who I am. This is the God Isaiah points him to. So Isaiah is bringing comfort to God's covenant people. He's proclaiming to them the good news that the one true God who created all things in Genesis 1-1 and the one true God who appeared to Moses in a burning bush has not changed. He's not asleep at the cosmic switch. He's not tired. He's not burned out. Governing the universe is a pretty big job, don't you think? Nor is he bored doing so. And notice here in verse 28, the phrase, his understanding is inscrutable. The Hebrew idea of understanding is not just cognitive brilliance. It is wisdom brilliance. It is not only cognition, it's beauty, this Hebrew word. 
So you have this picture that his understanding is beyond comprehension, but it's not just mere cognition, it's absolute breathtaking beauty of wisdom. Now, I have joined the ranks, thanks to my bride Liz, and my phone dying. Uh, I am now an iPhone user. Am I hip now? I mean, I know people are, when is Tom going to get an iPhone? iPhone 5. I mean, it, it does more than I can even imagine. You know, I'm still trying to figure this thing out. And so this Siri deal, you know, when I can talk to someone on my phone is pretty amazing, right? So I thought, hey, you know, I'm going to ask Siri some questions. <laughs> I just thought, why not? Uh, and uh, so I did. Um, and uh, I was thinking of verse 26 where Isaiah, you know, says, God is incomparable. He says, now look up at the night sky. Remember that? So when you're feeling down, we you feel God's let you down, his text is, okay, in this crescendo of Isaiah 40, look up. Look at the stars. And in the text of verse 26, he says, I even know them by name. Not one of them is missing something in Siri. What does Siri know about the stars? So I get on my phone and I say, Siri, how many stars are there in the universe? And it takes a little bit of time. And this is what she said, quote, I was going to bring my phone up here, but I thought it'd be too hip. Uh, you just, so Siri says, it looks like the answer, it looks like the answer for the number of stars, notice, in the observable universe, and then she describes this, which I can't even figure out because I'm not that good at math. But basically, she says, three times 10 to the 23rd power. Some of you brilliant mathematicians know that number is unfathomable. Then I thought, okay, Siri, you're so smart. I just want to know, are there more stars in the observable universe or universes than the grains of sand in the world, in the whole earth, the planet? <laughs> I mean, right? iPhone's supposed to be so smart. Come on, Steve Jobs. Pull it out, right? So I asked her, how many grains of sand are there in... in the earth. And she says, I like this, it looks like the answer is 1 times 10 to the 20th power. So not being very smart in math, I'm realizing, you know, at least according to Siri, there are more stars in the observable universe than even the grains of sand on earth by a vast margin. I remember visiting the Adler Planetarium. I get to Chicago pretty often. And uh, I love planetariums. I love cosmology. I've loved astronomy and cosmology since I've been this high. It just blows my mind. Exhibit after exhibit, I walk through there, and with the Hubble telescope and some other telescopes in outer space, we can peer into outer space further than ever. And there were several examples. I have a couple pictures just to remind us of nebula. I mean, these are the birthplace of stars. <laughs> and all these beautiful pictures up there. And then above one of these is one of my most challenging philosophers, Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant at the Adler Planetarium is quoted. And Immanuel Kant said this, two things astound me, the sky above me and the moral law within me. Both capture God is great and God is good. Notice the text tells us in verse 12, if you have this, it's a wonderful poetic picture that God is so great that he marks off the universe or universes in his span. See, in this Hebrew time, you didn't have, at least we know of, had a ruler, a measuring device. The measuring device was 
from your thumb to your pinky. That's a span. So take out your hand, look at your thumb to your pinky. And Isaiah is saying, the universe or universes in all its vastness fit between the thumb of God's hand and his pinky. How great is our God? See, if you're feeling like God has let you down, start looking up and see how great God is. And Isaiah reminds of people who are facing tough times in their individual life and as a nation, if your problems are too big, your God is too small. God is not only unfathomably great, he is unimaginably good. And don't miss this. Remember God is good when you're feeling down, when life is overwhelming. Verse 29, notice God says, Isaiah says, God gives. Don't, don't jump over that. This Hebrew verb understands us, understands God as a God who is an outpour. He's inexhaustible, unchanging. He is an outpour of goodness and love. He is not only omnipotent. You want to impress your friends? That means all-powerful. But he's not only omnipotent, he is omnibenevolent. You want to really impress your friends? Omnibenevolent means simply he is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Amen? And that's what he says. God's goodness means, notice the tenderness in this text, that he cares for us. He gives us strength when we're worn out, when we're over our heads, when our good God is there to help us. In the next chapter, in 41, he presses more into it. In 41.10 is one of the most comforting verses of the whole Bible. He says, when our strength fails, I will hold you in the palm of my hands. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament says that we can cast our care upon God for he cares for us. Notice the tenderness in chapter 40. You heard it read earlier in verse 11. Last week, we unpacked Jesus as our shepherd, and here this picture points to Jesus in verse 11 of chapter 40. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. Isn't that beautiful? He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That is the God who holds the universe between the palm, the, the, his thumb and his pinky. That's the God who holds you and me in his hand. Recently, I had the privilege of attending a lecture by N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright um, is a British scholar who's one of the leading scholars in the New Testament. And uh, he's very widely read today. I read almost everything he, re- he writes. And he gave a lecture. It was profound. And he told a story. It was just so amazing. As he's such a charming Brit. He told a story of a bright university student who comes up to him after a lecture and begins sort of this kind of rant. He says, Dr. Wright, I can't believe how anyone, anyone could believe in a Christian God, and he lists the whole list, who is an egoist, hateful, violent, vengeful, and he lists all this out. And Dr. Wright, again, is in his brilliance and gentleness and his Britishness, both, all of it, he pauses and waits till he's done, and then he looks at him and says, you know, son, he said, uh, I really can't see how anyone would believe in a God like that either. Then he pauses and he says, the God you're describing is not the God I believe in, nor the God the Bible teaches. Many of us have very warped caricatures of what the Bible teaches about God. From Genesis to Revelation, from the very first opening verses to the end of the Bible, the Bible presents to us a God who is unimaginably great and unimaginably good. A God who is absolutely other, in no class, a class by himself, nothing like anything else. He is holy. He is sovereign over all. 
As a local church, we are part of a denomination of over 2,000 churches right now called the Evangelical Free Church of America. As a group of churches, we believe that what we believe matters, that truth matters, that an integral faith community is unwavering in its commitment to sound doctrine. And the first article of our doctrinal statement begins with God and reads like this. I encourage you to look at your um, bookmark and think more about it this week. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his glory. I encourage you to press into this rich, rich statement. Let me highlight a couple things. First of all, you know that God is not evolving. God is not getting smarter because as a culture, we're more technologically advanced or more progressive. Notice also that God is the creator of all things. He is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He is the redeemer of a broken people. And we're going to unpack more in the days to come about who Jesus is and what he has done. But listen to the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Listen to this, how it echoes Isaiah. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a great is the great and the good God. And the question that jumps out as from the text here is, how big is your God? How big is my God? Because if we have a puny view of God, we will inevitably have an impoverished faith. So why does it matter so much? Why does this series matter so much? Why do having right thoughts about God matter so much in your life and mine every day? Let me suggest three responses to this question I'd like you to be thinking about this week, wherever you are in your spiritual journey. First, Isaiah reminds us throughout the whole chapter, the bigger your God, the smaller the idols. Many of us here today would not immediately think we are idol worshipers. Unlike in the book of Isaiah, he alludes to it in verses 19 and 20, we don't usually craft something and put it in our closet and wood or gold and pull it out at night and pray over it. But while we don't have idols in our closets, we do have idols in our hearts we worship. The thoughtful Puritan Christians who have so much to teach us in the arrogance of our presentism of our day tells us the human heart is an idol factory. What does the Bible say an idol is? An idol is anything or any one person however good and right they may be in themselves, that all of a sudden, over time, whatever become the ultimate thing in our lives. An idol is anything or anything else, or any person that competes with God for our ultimate allegiance and our affection and our devotion. Idols are counterfeit gods. And as counterfeit gods, they have a high price they demand. Our affection, our heart allegiances, our priorities, our passions... 
Heart idols can take the place of sexual pleasure outside of God's boundaries, of food, of a hobby, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, being popular at school or in our community, a successful career, an addiction of some kind, a political ideology, a spouse, children, grandchildren, money, wealth. We could just list financial security. Heart idols demand our complete devotion. And they enslave us. Like mirages in the desert, they promise us pleasure or control or power or good feelings. But in the end, when we grasp them and they enslave us, the closer we get, they betray us. Is something or someone too big in your life? Is someone or something taking the place only God should and deserves and must have in your life and mine? What Isaiah is saying here in this brilliant poetry is that idols of the heart lose their enslaving grip when we begin to see God who he really is. There is none like him. Worthy of our passion, affection, devotion, and absolute commitment. He is the one who is ultimate. He's worthy of our highest thoughts, our exclusive allegiance, and our greatest affections. If someone or someone or something is too big in your life, perhaps it's a signal to your heart and mind this morning that someone is too small in your life. Maybe your God is too small. The bigger your God, the smaller the God. Secondly, the bigger your God, the greater your hope. Look at verses 30 through 31 of Isaiah. Even though you shall faint, and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. This is the crescendo of the most brilliant Hebrew poetry ever written in 3,000 years. And it is a picture of vibrant strength and hope and human flourishing. When you read this text, You feel the weariness and tiredness of our broken lives and our fragile world, don't you? And isn't it interesting, even the picture of those in the prime of life, when our physical strength is strong, we still feel the fragility, frailty, and vulnerability of our lives. And Isaiah says, wait on God. But what does he mean? What does waiting mean? Waiting here is not a time construct. It is not as I get very impatient waiting for a red light, as many of you know. It is not a time construct. It is a timeless construct. It is a state of our being, regardless of circumstances, that allows us to stay confident as we trust a big God, even in the most difficult times of our life, of sadness, of grief, of heartache, of perplexity, of wonder, of pain. Because the bigger our God, the smaller our problems. Isaiah says, behold your God. Behold your God. Get your eyes on him. The bigger our God, the greater our hope. Hope is to your soul and mine what oxygen is to our physical bodies. None of us can survive long without it. The good news of the gospel brings this kind of transformational hope. We hear it in John's gospel for God. For our great and good God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
Theology begins with good news of a great and good God who rescues us, who longs to rescue you and me. And the good news of the gospel declares, behold your God, and it points us to the cross and to an empty tomb and it invites us to find forgiveness from sin and creation life by grace through faith. And don't miss this, don't miss this. The gospel is what makes the difference between knowing about God and knowing God personally. One of the greatest blindnesses of all of our lives is to know about him or believe about God rather than believe in him and know him intimately. Isaiah presents an invitation to know God intimately, to embrace him. Have you embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Not only is it true that the bigger your God, the smaller your idols. Not only is it true that the greater your hope, the greater your God. But also notice, the bigger your God, the braver you live. This is where the text ends. In verse 31, we have this amazing word picture of an eagle. Have you ever seen an eagle fly? I've been close to an eagle many years ago when it came down by a river and swooped up and started with its massive wings and then I watched it circle until it caught the thermal currents. It locked its massive wings and began to soar. You and I were not just created to fly, we were created to soar. You could never soar to be the person God has created you to be, to live the life you long to live, the life you were designed to live, now and forever, with your feeble strength or my feeble strength. There is a supernatural power of our great God that empowers us to live bravely and not merely safe. This week I caught a clip of President Obama awarding this young Marine, maybe you saw it, the prestigious Medal of Honor. A story about his life and what he did in Afghanistan is just stunning to me as bravery. Now we may not be called to fight a war and be brave for our colleagues, but you and I are called to be brave in our neighborhoods, our schools, with our families and our workplaces and not live safe. If you're a student here, a younger person, will you be like Daniel and his three friends? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who would not succumb to peer pressure or cultural conformity, but take a stand for God and truth with your peers? Would you be like young Queen Esther, who risked her life to protect her people from the grave injustice of a Holocaust? Will you stand up for the vulnerable in our day, the oppressed, the unborn? Will you live brave or will you live safe? Most of us need the courage, not for some grand act of bravery. We need the courage to be faithful in our work tomorrow, to do good work, to serve our community, to do good work for our employers if we're employed, and to share our gospel faith with others. Isaiah reminds us that we have a great and good God, and he says, the bigger your God, the braver you will live. Let's live brave and not safe. Our world does not need more comfortable Christians. Our world needs braver Christians filled with grace and truth and humility. So what's the most important thing about you, friends? Isaiah, the prophet, reminds us. The answer to the most important question is another question. That is, what do you really think and believe about God? Let's pray. Father, speak into our own context. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, show us your glory. May we behold your God, and may we live in light of that. Lord, bring comfort, bring hope, bring braveness to each one here this morning. And for those who might not know you, who have spent a life knowing about you, but not knowing you, may they know you this morning. May you reveal yourself to them. In Jesus' name.